Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. Um, I want to spend the next, well, couple, three weeks. I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but um, it's something that I have had on my heart for a long time. And I want to share it with you in these next weeks. And it is the last parable of Luke 15, the elder brother. I've heard gazillion uh, sermons on the lost sheep and the lost coin and, of course, the lost son. But very few, if any, I'm trying to think as I talk, if any on the elder brother, that other son. And, and so my text is there at the end of Luke chapter 15 concerning that other son, the other brother. And let me say this, and I find it very difficult to say this, but if you have a copy of my latest book, uh, This Son of Mine, then what I'm going to say in the next few weeks will mean so much more to you. Uh, because this son of mine deals with essentially the coming home of the first son that we call the prodigal son, actually the younger brother. Um, And as we come to this subject, it, it is enmeshed in everything I said in the book about the other son, the prodigal son. And so if you have it, you can easily begin to mesh the two together and have a whole new dimension to what I am sharing. Um, If you do not have the book, you can get it from our website. Or, of course, you don't have to get it. And um, what I'm saying here will stand on its own two legs. Okay, I hate making commercials about my own book, but there it is. So... Let's read from Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to read the whole of this last parable um, of the elder brother uh, so that we we get a feel, because many times in readings in churches, they stop after the younger son is ushered into the feast. But So let's read this. Some may never have read the whole thing before. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants. The better translation there, and what would make a lot more sense, is children. In third world countries, when you approach a village, you are met by hordes of children who have every scrap of news of everything that's happened and is happening in the village. And that's the better understanding here. And he summoned one of the children and began inquiring what these things could be. 
And the child said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, became angry, was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Okay, it's important to note that this older brother is a vital part of the whole story. I call it a separate parable because it sort of is. But really, the, the passage on the prodigal son begins by saying a certain man had two sons. And of course, the story of the prodigal son only tells us about the history of the youngest one. But it's begun by preparing us. There's another son here, another son. So we have to say that this other son is a vital part of what this story is all about. It's not only about one son. There's this other son who is going to shed light upon the whole revelation of the love of God that is in this chapter and specifically in this story. I might say this. Um, you know, and with the publishing of this new book, um, it's sort of gotten out for sure, that... This story, the, the whole of Luke 15, but especially the story of the two sons, is where the revelation of the grace of God came to me. I, I've had many people say to me, where did you get this? You know, uh, I, I read the Bible, I didn't see this. Where, where, where did this revelation of the love of God and the grace of God come to you? Well, I'll tell you, I'll spill the beans. When I was a young teenager, I read this story and it came alive to me. At least the prodigal son came alive. And, and I've been studying this story and the whole chapter for 65 years now. And um, th this, if you want to know Malcolm Smith, if you want to know where I'm coming from, you want to know the window through which the revelation of grace came to me originally, here it is in this chapter. But you see, if I can narrow that down, the grace of God really got a hold of me in all its shockingness with the elder brother. Yes, hold with me. 
with the elder brother because when I first read this story and for some little time afterward, I sided with the elder brother. I could not understand why this chap had been given such a bad deal. I read what this elder brother was saying and and I, I, I commiserated with him. It's not fair. He had stayed home. He had worked. He had all of this. And the younger brother had squandered everything. And the younger brother had been celebrated. And this poor chap is, is left out in the cold. That's my first impression as I read it. And I can distinctly remember saying, I, I see where this fellow's coming from. It's not fair. And then with a sickening thud, it hit my spirit that if I was on the side of the elder brother, there was obviously something I had totally missed in the teaching and person of Jesus because he's not holding up this elder brother as an example. And I had, that was it. In, in that revelation that I was on the wrong side of this parable, that when I said it's not fair, that, that meant I, there was something I hadn't seen about the heart of God. And that one light shattered or came to shatter the things that I was beginning to assimilate from the church I was going to. And, and there came the revelation of God's grace. And, and so th this is very personal to me. And I, I trust those of you especially who have asked, where do you see this? Where do you get it from? Where? This is it. Hang in there. The, the younger son is in my book, but now we're going to look at the elder brother, which probably is going to be another book in a few years' time. Anyway, Jesus is teaching us in this whole set of parables, Jesus is teaching and he's teaching for a specific reason, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Uh, and let me be fair, they, they were, in many respects, good people. They were people that studied, memorized the scriptures by the book. They memorized the Old Testament. They, they were rigid in their keeping of the laws of Moses, and they gave a whole bunch of other laws to help you keep those laws of Moses. They, they were the fundamentalists of the day. They, they, they would be very much like many of our evangelical friends. They would take in a lot of the enthusiasm of the charismatic. They, yeah. There's a lot to be said for the Pharisee. The Sadducees that you read of, the actual temple crowd who crucified Jesus, they, they were more the liberals. So Jesus was addressing the Pharisee. Why was he doing that? Because Jesus was sitting at table eating with the most despised people in Israel, they were called the tax collectors, Jews that had sold themselves over to Rome to extract taxes from their own people. And they were hated, despised, vilified, excommunicated, you name it. No decent Jew would ever be seen talking to a tax collector 
let alone eating with them, which was a covenant act. And around the edge of the courtyard are these Pharisees who stand with folded arms with rage on their face and in loud whispers are expressing their rage that Jesus should bring shame upon any form of godliness and ministry by eating with these scumbags, these rats of society. Jesus answers their loud whispers with these parables. And he brings a revelation. More than that, would you understand me? Jesus did not merely teach a revelation. He is in his very person, not only his words, but what he did and would do. He is the revelation of the Father's love. That revelation, please understand me, is not just a a sort of a, a neat, different kind of teaching. This revelation is the most radical revelation of truth that has ever been shared into the airspace of this planet. Because, okay, let, let, do you remember Matthew eleven twenty-five, where Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and whoever he chooses to reveal the Father to. And then he goes right on to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and so on. What is he saying? He uses the word know, knows the Father. The Father knows the Son, which is a mean, the word there is nothing to do with know about. That's not any stuff you get in Bible schools or Bible studies. It's not information. Know is by personal knowledge. It's, it's personally experiencing the other. It means that you see and know for yourself. It is the most intimate word of the Bible, certainly of the New Testament. It's the word that's used in Scripture to describe the marriage relationship. That uh, Jesus says, no one... Wow, what an expression. No one. That includes every human being. No one, he says, no one, up to the time he was speaking, he says, no one, no one on the planet knows the Father. No one knows intimately by personal experience and observation who God the Father really is. You don't know him. But I do, he says. I'm the only one, the only one among humans who knows who Father is. I know him. I know him. And John 1.18 says it so, again, using such intimate language, he says that no one, there it is again, no one has seen God. No one knows God. No one has seen him at any time, but the only begotten God or God from God who has been in the bosom of the Father, he has come to us and he has exegeted the Father. That's the 
word there. He's explained him. He's laid him out, and he does so because he knows the Father. He's the perfect image of the Father. He is the presence of God among us. So no one knows the Father except the Son, and he goes on to say, but I'm going to share that that I know with all who come to me. Wow. Jesus, again, is called the faithful and true witness. He speaks the absolute truth concerning the Father. But you see, and of course what he's doing here in these stories of sheep and coins and sons, he is laying out before us in language a child can understand. This is what God the Father is like. And I am the image of the Father to reveal the Father and to actually bring the Father's love into your life. No wonder he said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why is that so radical? Well, number one, he's canceled out everything human beings ever thought they knew about God. And he says, you don't know him. You'll only know him through me. Which means, he is saying, mankind is, if you're left to your own brain to try and figure out who God is, you are in total darkness you don't know. You're blind You're believing the lie of Satan that started off this fallen world. Which means you're hostile to this revelation that Jesus brings. And I mean hostile. Because no one wants to be told you're up the wrong creek, you know. You're paddling your canoe into nowhere. Own up. You don't know where you're going. You're lost. So hear the voice of the only one who knows who God is and what he is like because he is himself God from God. Jesus came to collapse the lie, to open the eyes of blinded people to see the truth that was always the truth, but they were blind to it because of the lie that Satan had put upon the eyes and hearts of the human race. All the ideas of God that we humans make up, it's all going nowhere because we're just making it up. Here is God telling us who God is and doing so in language so simple it's frightening. Please understand this. The way God really is, is be any, we'd never imagine it. So if we've tried to imagine it, we're wrong, you say. That's why Jesus is so threatening. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's never entered into the heart of man. So if, if you think, well, I've got this all wrapped up. I got A plus in Bible school and I know exactly who God is. Well, just hold a minute, hold a minute. You don't know who God is unless you meet him in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the revelation, and he's the revelation 
in who he is and all that he did, but also in everything he taught, like this. And therefore, when we say that we believe in Jesus, I don't, I don't mean that you believe there was an historical fellow named Jesus. I don't mean that. I mean, do you believe, do you trust in, have you rested your life into not only who he is, but what he taught concerning God? And let me warn you, that will turn your life upside down, inside out, and smash all your ideas of what it ought to be. That's what he's doing here. That's what this story is about, you see. And let me say this. I I prefaced all of this by saying I hadn't heard many sermons on the elder brother. Um, We gravitate to the prodigal, don't we? That's why everybody knows the story of the prodigal son. We've even got magnificent artwork, paintings of the prodigal son. Um, Sometimes the elder brother turns up in those paintings, but um, we don't exactly put the chap on show. We we sing songs about the prodigal, don't we? Tie a yellow ribbon to the old oak tree and all that sort of stuff. Somehow we relate to him, but the elder brother, we seem to avoid him. Give him a wide berth. Could I suggest it's possibly we avoid the elder brother because actually he's too close to home. See, that's what I had to face back there when I was a young teenager. That I found myself relating to the elder brother. He's... He's very much like us, or we're very much like him. And, and, and so suddenly it, it hits home. And, and I'm faced with just a minute. I, I, I relate to him. And I don't like that. I don't like that. See, the, the prodigal son, somehow I relate to him, but I don't, you see. I, I've... I've Personally, I've never gone off to a far country and spent a fortune in wild living and then ended up longing to get on all fours with a bunch of pigs. I, I've never, no. I can relate to the incredible love of God that comes through that story, but as to the prodigal himself, only a sort of a, if I can go into my own heart, I can. But this chap, the elder brother... Ah, that's a different story. He's a respectable fellow. He's hardworking. He comes over, at least to begin with, as a faithful and loyal to the family business. You see, the trouble when he opens his mouth and begins to talk, can you hear me for a minute? My eyes have seen what he's saying. I get it. My ears, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that out of my own mouth. Entered into my heart? You bet it has. Fairness. It's not fair. It's right. And all that sort of stuff. I, I, I get that. I, I, I get what the elder brother believes. It, it appeals to my human flesh, you see. It does. His ideology is right in line. So I should smell a rat there, shouldn't I? Because it says that 
the revelation of the real God eyes have not seen. Is I've never thought these thoughts. I've never dreamt of the way God is. He, he's upsetting to everything that I think is right. So maybe that's why we steer clear of this chap because he's awfully close to home. It, it, you know, in Proverbs it says there is a way that seems right to man but the end thereof is the way of death. See, the sheep of, of parables in this chapter, I mean, it's obvious the jolly sheep was lost. No problem, it's lost. Coin, lost, rolled away into the dirt and dust. Prodigal son, this chap's younger brother, obviously lost. But this elder brother, he doesn't look lost. You know, he, in the story, he's a gentleman farmer. Today, he'd be a bank manager. I mean, it's probably be a, an attorney. I mean, he's a, he, he's a fellow who demands respect. He's done it right. In fact, he looks like the fellow sitting next to me in church. That's the trouble, isn't it? I, you see, do you see what I'm getting at? He's the one who stayed home when the younger one ups and offs, um, having told his father he wished he was dead. And so if you won't be dead, then uh, I can't wait for you to hurry up and die. Give me my money right now. Read the will and get this done. Mind you, the elder brother, though he kept silent at that time, he got two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger chap only got a third. That was the law. And, and so, okay... He didn't, he, he didn't say he wished his father was dead, but he sure grabbed the money. He didn't stop the situation, which he could have done as the elder brother. So he stayed home, but that home now belonged to him. It, it, it had come in the dividing of the property. He got that. He's a hard worker, looks like a model son, and when we first meet him, here, in verse 25, he's, he's working in the fields. And then he's coming home at the end of the day. I think Jesus introduces him like this. Jesus, this master storyteller, here's a fellow who defines his life by hard work, coming home at the end of the day, exhausted, weary, ready to pride himself on I did it alone because the other lazy chaps weren't there. And as he comes home, because the fields that he worked in seemed to be a long way off from the house, and he hears distant music. And the closer he gets, the music is attended by voices singing. And then, good grief, he smells on the air roast beef. 
And, and, and you can watch the anger rising. His cheeks are getting redder. His stride is getting more deliberate. He's, he's angry at the sound of joy that he did not sanction or have control of or know what is going on here. You get the sort of chap. And as he comes closer to the village, he, he confronts a child, as I said earlier, and the words, and of course Jesus is the storyteller, so he, he uses words that are important, even though they're just done in passing. But it says, and, and the word that is used, that, that he confronted, well, the word in my New American Standard, he, he summoned. It's, it's the word which means sort of in your face. Um, come here, boy. It, it, it's it's a nasty way. It, it's 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 a confrontation. It's it's got a threat in it that if you don't come, you'll pay for this. Um, sort of stand to attention. Tell me what's going on here. As this opens up, this fellow always has to be in control. And, and so so the boy or girl, I suppose. Uh, and, and, and spills it out. And in one sentence, your brother's returned. Your father has received him. And they're celebrating and, and says, your father received him. And our Bible says, safe and sound, which really is the meaning of the word. But you see, the word is shalom. And the word shalom means peace, but it means reconciliation. It means wholeness. It means healing. And so the surface word means shalom. It means, well, you're safe and you're sound in health. But oh, to say it, your, your father received him in shalom, it means your father received him in peace, in reconciliation. It means your father made everything whole between them. It means forgiveness. It means reconciliation. Oh, yeah. Shalom. And at those words, the scripture says, the man fell into a rage. Rage. His brother. Just the mention of the word brother. His brother is being celebrated. His brother is being feasted in the village, honored rewarded, welcomed home, give me a break, that this, my, my father's house has become a house of insanity, what on earth does he think he's doing? This chap's rage is not merely because he hates joy. You see, the name of this fellow's life is control. And and he he's got it in his he's got his whole life rigidly under his control, and, and the foundation of that control was very simple: you do good, and you're rewarded and honored for doing good. You mess up your life, you do bad, you disobey, and you are punished, and you are beaten, and you're demoted dishonored. I've got it all right. You see, I make sure I do what is right. I make sure that I do what's good. 
and I wait for my reward and my honor. And my younger brother, he did supremely what was wrong. If ever a man messed up, he messed up. And if he's home, he must be punished and he must be beaten. I suppose the word people would understand today, this fellow's life was based on his idea of karma. What what you put in, you're going to get out. And therefore, I've got this all under control, you see. I, I put in good, I must be rewarded. He put in bad, he must be punished. I'm a do-gooder. And I'm waiting for my reward. I'm waiting for my ultimate acceptance when people know just how good I am. I'm waiting for the applause and praise for the kind of life I'm living. But what has happened? My brother, who has nothing to offer but shameful actions to the nth degree, who should have been publicly beaten as an example of you just don't do what you did. Instead, instead there's a city-wide welcome that I heard from a mile away and it's sponsored by my father. You get it? I, he says, I should be the one honored. Instead, I've been ignored, humiliated, overlooked. Please understand this. This is the heart of this part of the story. His world has been turned upside down. The ground has opened up in front of him. He's clinging to the vestiges of control. What he believed was, was right and it's got to turn out that way, but it's crumbling as he grasps it. Look at it another way. The cement that held this life of his together was comparison. Remember, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, especially so here. Do you remember the Pharisee who prayed in the temple that Jesus reported on elsewhere? When he says, I thank you, O God, I am not as other men. And I'm certainly not like that tax gatherer over there. That was the cement of the Pharisee. I am not like other persons, and especially I'm not like the especially bad people. So he held his faith together with words like, like I'm not like, or, you know, with the lift of the head and the flare of the nostrils to say, I would never, never would I do that. How could he have done that? Or, I'm better than, you know what I'm talking about. Do you see why we avoid this chap? It's terribly close to home. I, I relate to so much of this. See, that's got it all under control, you see. I'm not like him. I'm not like him. I'm better than him. Therefore, I'm okay. I'm scheduled for honor and acceptance. 
And of course, if such a person meets someone that is better than them, immediate <coughs> jealousy. Or have you ever seen it on the face of church members when they meet someone who is obviously doing something better than them in terms of their moral life that they're presenting to God and the world as reasons for acceptance, and then they meet someone who's doing it jolly well better. Jealousy. You can't hide it. It shows right on the face. I've seen it too many times. Begin to avoid that person who's better than... I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to hear about that. Introduce that other person's name into a conversation, and you, I mean, it's ice cold, hits the table. You want to separate away from them and tragically destroy them with gossip if I possibly can. That's the man we're looking at. And he's mad at his father for doing this, because the father was not part of his real world. Oh, they lived in the same house, but as far as his elder brother was concerned, they were sort of roommates. Possibly met at the breakfast table, dinner table, that's about it. He looked upon his father as the supreme authority, the boss man. He looked upon himself then as servant. Or worse, actually, he looked upon himself as a slave. He didn't know his father, that word that Jesus is so fond of. He didn't know the father. He acknowledged the presence of his father, but that was it, arm's length, across the table. Therefore, he didn't I, I doubt he'd ever seen it, even though it happened across the table. When that younger son left to go to the far country, this elder brother's attitude would have been good riddance. I, I don't think he ever noticed the extreme sadness on the face of his father. I, I don't think he could even interpret the longings of his father or even notice that his father never stopped looking up the road down which the son had traveled away. No, he didn't know his father. Didn't really like his father. He actually wanted out, I believe. He just didn't have the courage to do what the younger son had done. Did you notice later on in the story when he, he says, you didn't even give me a young goat? Did you notice what he said? You didn't give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Huh, interesting. That, that You see, the feast that was going on that causes all of this trouble, the feast was not that the younger son had come home and, and, and said, okay, I, I want to go, go down and uh, hang out with my friends and have a feast. The feast was instituted by the father. This was the father and the son, the younger son. This was the son discovering a father he never knew. This is the son in this feast of father and son coming to know each other. This older brother compares what he wants with what's happening there. He doesn't ask for a, such a feast as that. He doesn't say, Father, you, you've never given me a feast where we could... No, 
He says, you never gave me a goat so I could get out of here and have some fun with my friends. Interesting, interesting. Of course, there's another massive divide here. This older son was operating in his head. I say that because it was not so. Father knew nothing about what was going on in his head. But in his head, he was operating from contract. Contract. You know what a contract is? It's that arm's length relationship which says, I don't trust you. It says that I will do this and this and this, and because I will do this and this and this, you will pay me this and this and this. And if you don't pay me, I'll sue you. That's a contract. They're nasty things, necessary in a fallen world. The father was operating out of covenant where I give myself to you. Now, the, the, this elder son has invented this contract. That's how he looks at life. That's how he looks then at his father. His father should now be rewarding him for the work that he's done. He's resentful. He's saying essentially to the father, you didn't keep the contract. Fact is, there never was a contract. It only existed inside the warped, twisted head of this elder brother. The elder son in a family in these days, he received two-thirds of the inheritance, but also he received the great responsibility of taking his father's heart, his father's goals, his father's mission to the world into the future. The, in fact, among these people of this day, they somehow saw that their children were sort of their ongoing life. This elder son, he doesn't even know his father. He's got no interest whatsoever in taking the father's heart. He doesn't know what the father believes. He doesn't care what the father wants. He doesn't know his father's goals. He's not... Go he All he is, in a sense, he cowers resentfully before the perceived authority of his father. The fact his father's going to judge him his master. Well, all of that, all of that, you see, is now falling apart. All because he sees his father's love. And that father's love looks like insanity to everything he believes. He sees his father's love toward his younger brother, which meant everything that I had believed, everything that was in place, the, the juggling act that I was keeping complete control over is falling apart. I'm dropping the plates, you see. It's a free fall. It's a free fall. And my parachute's not opening. And he's terrified. He's reaching out to clutch at what he believed, but it's not there. Do you, do you see that? All that ordered life. I do this, I get that. I do this, I'm rewarded. He, my father, my authority, my boss, the judge of what I do, he tells me what to do, and I do it. And one day he'll see and he'll reward me. All that's gone. Do, do you see that? All, I mean everything, his entire life is gone, smashed. Because his 
brother who's done everything wrong is being rewarded with a feast. It's insanity. That's why he was so angry. It's the anger of a terrified man who sees his life is collapsing. His life collapsed at the sight of father's love. And the sight of his father's love for his rebellious brother caused his own do-it-yourself life to hang in shreds. It's not where it's at, is it, you see? Huh. It's all... See, the prodigal son, this other brother, had already seen that. Do you remember? He came home with his do-it-yourself salvation. You know, he comes home. I'm going to say this to my father. I'm going to agree with my dad. I've sinned against heaven and against him. That's for sure. Screwed up royally. I'm going to come home. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's for sure. But this is, this is, my, this is my way of salvation. I'll present it to him. Hopefully before I get the beating, I'll present it to him. Make me as one of your hired servants. I'll become something just a tad above a slave. And he comes home with this. This is his hope. This is his only hope. That he can get this through to his dad and he'll become an arm's length relationship, you see. But at least to get a meal or two. And, and, and he comes home. And his father erupts in love and kissing him all over. And, and suddenly, uh, this thing that he's bringing home as his way of salvation looks idiotic. Life, hope, fell apart at the sight of his father's love. But he realized in that moment that it was not falling apart but really falling into place he realized this is what life is he discovers love he discovers grace gift love acceptance not through anything you've done but because of who this incredible father is that's what jesus was saying so there's no, the, the idea, let me be your hired servant, he's holding on to that, but he just crumbles in his hands. And he just let go. He free falls. And he fell and finds us not holding on with white knuckles, but falling into and being held in the father's arms. This older brother is going through a similar thing, but he's not getting it. He sees his father's love and he's mad, angry, because that love equals the end of life as he knows it. He storms into the village, enough that very quickly he's communicated, I'm not going into that madhouse, not going in. If you could imagine, well, the people in the house, all faces pressed to the window. They're hearing this raging bull outside on the porch, not coming in. Well, you see, okay, that's bad enough. 
But it's if you know the custom of that day, and when I say custom, I mean it never was anything other. This is the way it had been for a thousand years. The eldest son of a household, when there was a feast, became co-host with his father, but the eldest son took the place of the head servant, the maitre d'. He would hover. He wouldn't sit at head table with father. The father would be left to really honor the guest of honor while the eldest son floated from table to table, made sure everybody had their food and drink and was comfortable. He would be the servant of the village. He would be the face of his father to everyone. And above all would he serve the guest of honor and make sure that he was appropriately honored. Now do you see why he wouldn't go in? If he went in, he would have to assume being the servant of his younger brother and serve that younger brother and honor him and make sure he knows he's welcomed and so on. It was a public meltdown such as would horrify. We don't have anything like it in our society. So I I can't give you an example. It would just leave the people speechless. There was only one thing a respectable father could do to such a son. And that was arrest him. Yes, you heard me right. In such a household, the servants would arrest such a, an out-of-control person who would dare in public to insult his father in such a fashion. He would be arrested. He would be locked away in a shed or somewhere. And after the feast, the father would administer a beating. That was custom irrevocable. And the crowd are waiting. They they hear this son shaming his father in public. They're waiting for the father to issue the order to the servants, or maybe even the servants just do their job. And you know how it is. You know something should be happening and there's an uncomfortable tension, a sort of edginess. Someone's going to do something here to this this son. He's ranting. He's just bringing more shame on the house. And instead, the father gets up. Now there's silence. These people don't know what to do. They've been faced with, uh, with, with nothing but shocks all day long and he goes out to the sun no no you're adding your own shame to this shameful thing you don't go out you're the master of this house order him to be arrested prepare for punishment no he goes out leaving people now they're beyond speechless they can't handle this He goes right out to where the sun is. But he does, Jesus doesn't use the same word as the sun had done to that little boy or girl when he confronted. Oh, if ever there was a time this father had a right to confront his son 
What on earth do you think you're doing? But Jesus doesn't use that word and is very specific, these words in the Greek. It says instead he entreats. The word that was used for the son to the child was, as I said, in your face. It's coming at you with authority, demeaning you. The word Jesus uses here, the father came out, and this word means to come alongside of you. Not in your face, come alongside. And the word in English is entreat you. You could almost say plead with you. Come alongside. Let's reason together. That would be another good way. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. (coughs) See, (coughs) the father had all the right in the world. He could have done anything to his son and he had the people on his side. Comes alongside, he pleads. Do you know this word that is used here? in the same family as the word that Jesus used in John chapter 14, 15, 16 to describe the Holy Spirit which some of you will know the Greek word paraclete it's a God word in that sense it's been used to describe God the Holy Spirit the one who comes alongside and pleads he's not the judge he's not the attacker he's not the demeanor doesn't call you stupid puts his arm around you and says, let's reason. Come and see this incredible God. Come and see his love for you. Why why does the Father do that? Because love has no interest in a slavish obedience. Can we get that in our head? Pastors, can you get this? Because we communicate the word and heart of God to our people. God the Father is not interested, not interested in people slavishly doing what they think and are told is right just to escape punishment. He's not interested. He is only interested in developing and maturing relationship love, his love to us that evokes love to him which delights in his agenda. We'll talk another week on what the son said to the father. But the father comes to this raving idiot, screaming his rage as he sees his world collapsing. And our Bibles say, he said to him, son, that would be amazing enough. But actually, the word in the Greek language is different. It's the the word that describes the little child. It's as if the father remembers when this elder son was the little child playing in the meadow crawling on his knee and playing with his beard. It's as if he said, my dear little boy. It was a word of deepest affection. My dear, dear son. What's he? He is saying, remember our relationship. Don't tell me everything you've done. 
Remember. Remember relationship. The love of Father. And I crave only one thing, not a list of all the things you've done, but I crave relating to you and you relating to me. And he says, you were always with me. You might have been sitting there behind the New York Times. You might have grunted at my words. But from my side of the table, you were always with me. And that word with is a covenant word. Remember in the Old Testament, they greeted one another with the words, the Lord be with you. It meant a closeness. Some might translate it even cheek to cheek. It's, it's face to face. It's a, it's a un, union word. He says, you're my son. You're my son. It's the core of our existence. I've never left you, son. I've always been with you. And you're mad. I didn't give you a goat. Forget that. You, you, you can't earn what I've already given. You're upset I didn't give you a goat? Good grief. You own all the goats. This, everything that is mine is yours. You could have had a thousand parties if you wanted. You're my son. Everything I have is yours. Maybe most importantly, this is the final. If everything that's happened before has a cause, it was a near collapse of this poor chap. But this does it. Because what is the father saying? You can rage all you want. You can spit in my face. You can insult me before heaven and earth and all the village. But you cannot control my love. And that's what the son had been trying to do all his life was control his father's love. I do good, therefore you're allowed to love me. Therefore, in fact, you must love me. I do bad or he does bad. You're not allowed to love me now because I've done bad. I have sat in churches and heard that in effect over and over again. God loves you if you do this, if you do that. And if you do this, if you do that, then God doesn't love you. It's like picking the flowers, you know. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You don't know where you stand because you're trying to control God's love. You're giving him permission. Now you can love me because I said the right words. I said the right prayer, so you can love me now. Dear Lord, I did something wrong on Wednesday, so you can't love me anymore until I say the right words again. What utter chaos. What damnable heresy. No wonder Jesus said nobody knows the Father. The Father is saying here, you stand here and insult me, you divorce yourself from this family. I don't even listen, son. You are my dear little boy. Whether you knew it or not, you were always with me. Whether you knew it or not, everything I have is yours. You cannot control me. You cannot, by your behavior, change who I am. You can't make me reject you any more that you can force me to accept you. You see, you're out of control. You're free-falling and there's no parachute. 
but you're not falling into nothingness you're falling into my arms son you're not falling apart it's all falling into place if you've got eyes to see you've lost anything to hold on to so that I can hold you in my arms do you get it and as to this feast he says because this apparently is what really upsets you <laughs> it was necessary he said it's a tremendous word in, in the Bible language it, it, it was a must we had no other option we had to because this brother of yours he was lost which of course is a magnificent word because something must be extremely precious to you to be lost lost when a child is lost you call the whole village out to find them extreme pressure preciousness he was lost all I wanted was to hold him again to have my lost son home his home we had to celebrate you say relationship you're saying he doesn't deserve it it's all about behavior father says I forgive him because all I want is to hold him he was dead and dead that's irreversible he's gone irreversible it's death put them in the grave cover them up it's gone over finished irreversible but he said there's been a resurrection he's home he's in my arms we're building a new life based on love his behavior will of course change because love changes everything son it's all about relationship all about love and you're making it all about contract and working and trying hard and wondering why you're not being rewarded and not being noticed where you were in the presence of love and you rejected the love to present your resume there's a terrible verse in 1 Corinthians and I'm going to time over time but I'm going to take this time I've got to read it if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal what what if I have prophecy know all mysteries word of wisdom word of knowledge all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love I am nothing if I give all my possessions to feed the poor if I surrender my body to be burned as a martyr but do not have love it profits me nothing have you read that before have you read that before the terrible terrible horrific emptiness and nothingness of serving God without knowing God's love and responding to love and acting in love no wonder this leaves us uneasy edgy and of course 
It doesn't end, does it? What, what happened? Did they go into the feast? Did the elder brother let his father hug it? What happened? I, I don't know. That's where the story ends. No wonder I'm all edgy about this because we've left a man in free fall without a parachute. What's he going to do? Will he accept this love? Will he let himself be loved? Will he come to the same resurrection that his younger brother has come to? Will he fall into his father's arms? Will he repent, which means a spirit-initiated radical change of mind concerning truth? And will he trust that truth? We'll need another couple of weeks to talk about this. But may the Lord bless you as you ponder these words that we've shared tonight. And now the blessing of this incredible God who is love, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, His blessing be yours, that you may release your grasp upon your control of good works and trusting in self And may you fall into the arms of the God who loves you. And instead of holding on, be held in those arms of love. So I bless you and declare of you and your house that is the way it is.